Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. turn then to Second Samuel. Please find a Bible. And we're turning to this wonderful book we're beginning, really just getting into in the Old Testament, Second Samuel, uh, chapter 2, page 255. If you're using a church Bible, page 300 in the large print. Let me read for us. Abner, we met him last week opposing the kingdom. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the opponent, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Friends, today, twenty-four children lie dead in Thailand. And the world of the Bible is not far from the world we live in. Look at verse 16. Each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so they fell down together. 24, 12 and 12. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. The battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. Pick on someone your own size. Don't try and take me. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, 
And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. They took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Amen. Friends, it's true, isn't it? Some of us are enjoying Second Samuel simply for the story as we read it. We're, some of us are able, I think, just to tune in right away to the drama that's here of opposing sides, armies in gladiatorial combat, special forces setting off in individual pursuit over the hills. There's enough enjoyment for some of us in this narrative just to keep us interested as we, as we read it. I, I want to give us this morning what I'm going to call three nuggets of gold from what we've read. Three nuggets that kind of just sit on the surface of the story. But others of us, I think, are understandably struggling after a reading like this, aren't we? To see the wood for the trees. It seems to come from so long ago and to be about places and people from so far away. How, how is it that you are speaking to me, Lord, through this? What are you saying to me today? So let me just remind us then about where we got to last week. Chapter 2 that we're in is all about the presence of God's kingdom in his world with God's king on his throne. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. The men of Judah came. They anointed David king over the house of Judah. Verse 7. The house of Judah has anointed me, David, king over them. Verse 11. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. It is an unmissable drumbeat in this chapter. But, but, God's king is always opposed. God's king is always opposed. You, you want a world without conflict, a world without pain? It does not happen this side of heaven. Last week, we looked at the surprises of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and we left hanging in the air, didn't we, what we're now going to look at up close in gory, tragic, terrible detail for a few Sundays the opposition to the kingdom. The opposition to the kingdom. Verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took 
Ishbosheth, a puppet king, the son of Saul, and placed him on the throne in the north. Friends, we are face to face here this morning with the stunning truth that when God gives us what we need and what we want, a king to rule us, the human race will sooner go it alone than bow the knee to that king. That's the truth of it. And so what I want to do this morning is to have something for everybody. I want to have something for the folks who are just loving this story as we read it and getting into it. I want to show us some of the gold that's here. But then after showing us the nuggets of gold, I want to try and give us the treasure of the passage. And the treasure of the passage is buried in place names. The place names of the passage. I wonder if you can guess what they are or what it might be. Last week, Hebron. Do you remember? David went up to Hebron, Abraham's place. He ascends to Abraham's story to write the next chapter in Abraham's story. Abner anoints his rival king in Mahanaim, a place that means two camps. He, he splits the people in two. He, he crowns one man and divides a nation. And there is another place name here in our passage this morning where treasure is buried. Let me give you three nuggets of gold, first of all. Number one, don't be like Abner and Joab, the politicians. Number two, don't be like Asahel, the athlete. Number three, don't be like Abner, the absurd. Number one, don't be like Abner and Joab, the politicians. God gives us stories. It's a beautiful thing. As we open Second Samuel chapter 2 and read it in church week by week, God is saying to us, are you sitting comfortably? That, that, that's what God is asking us this morning. You've come to church for story time. It, it's beautiful as we sit together. God tells us a story about just how much can go wrong in the kingdom. Did you notice, friends, in a single day? 24 hours, sometimes you go to sleep one day and you wake up the next and the entire world is different. Verses 12 to 32 is one day. Do you know why it can go wrong so quickly? When politicians are in charge. I think we believe it, don't we? Oh, the carnage. Don't be like Abner and Joab, the politicians. Look what happens, friends, from verse 12. Two opposing sides, verse 13, two opposing sides meet together. For some reason, the, the, the ESV version that you're using, that I'm using, that's here in church, doesn't put in the word that should be there in verse 13. Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met together at the pool of Gibeon. See, there's this clear sense for us that there is one people of God, but Ab Abner has split them in two. The one people of God have been disunited. You have Abner and his men representing the tribes in the north, and you have Joab and his men representing David and Judah in the south. And yet here they are together, sitting opposite a pool, round a pool in Gibeon. They are together. Together is what the people of God are meant to be, isn't it? They're meant to be one, whole, together, not divided. And yet here they sit, divided. 
So what will happen when the politicians get together? Do you notice there is no king here? Ishbosheth is not here. David is not here. It's the strong men, the military men. What will happen? Will there be a pact? Will there be a truce, a deal? Even better, will there be reunification, a reconciliation perhaps, repentance, humility? The problem is that politicians are so often driven by, well, what? Take your pick. Power, prestige, coming out on top. We're meant to notice that neither of the kings are there. This is a world without a king. What happens? Carnage. Verse 14, Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. Joab said, okay, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for one side, 12 of the servants of the other. Now, whether this was always intended to be a fight, whether it was just meant to be a kind of wrestling match that went wrong, badly wrong, The writer wants us to know that when God's people turn their backs on God's king and entrust themselves to the muscle men and the men with money and the people with power, then the end is always nigh. I think we need a little bit of help out in the foyer, folks, just with people coming in. I want you just to notice, friends, here, how many men fight I want you to notice just how many, many men fight in verse 15. Put, put the numbers together. They arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin, twelve of the servants of David. How many tribes were there in Israel? How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve tribes. But they've been split into two, haven't they? David and Ishbosheth. David and Ishbosheth. And now look. The two tribes themselves put forward 12 men to come and fight. 12 on each side. If these 12 represent the people of God on one side and these 12 represent the people of God on the other side, which of these 12 is going to prevail and be the true people of God? Can you believe it? Verse 16, each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. They fell down together. That is 12 dead on one side. That is 12 dead on the other side. Friends, if the 12 mini Israels are dead within the two divided Israels, do you see the point of the story? What does it mean for both sides? It means that the whole project of one united Israel is dead. It's symbolically a disaster, isn't it? It's like, it's like killing a man in the Middle Ages. Remember what you did in the Middle Ages? You, you hung him, you drew him, you quartered him on a slab. He was really dead. But then you sent the four parts of his body to the four corners of the earth to show everybody that he's really, really dead. Oh, friends, the promise to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Really? Israel, my people, a city on a hill, a light to the nations. All the nations of the earth are going to stream to Zion. Really? We're going to see your God and say, we want to be like you. 
Are you kidding me? Verse 16, the people of God are butchering each other by an oasis in Gibeon. This is a contest that has gone badly, badly wrong. Verse 17, the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Brothers and sisters, what do God's people need? Never strategists. Never strategists. That is not what God's people need. For what if they get the strategy wrong? No, never diplomats. For some enemies cannot be appeased or should not be appeased. Never politicians, for politicians can treat people as means to an end, can't they? They they can pursue power for profit. God's people need a king. God's people need a king. Listen to John Adams, one of the founding fathers in America, talking about the American Constitution. He said this. This is astonishing. He said, we have no government that is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. We have no government that is equal to the task of contending with human passions unless there is religion and morality at the heart of those passions. Our constitution, he said, was made only only for a moral and religious people. In other words, take God out of the picture, John Adams is saying, America will not work. It will not last. It will not stand. In other words, he said, in fact, he went on to say, greed, ambition, revenge, these things will break the strongest cords of our constitution like a whale goes through a net. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? Doesn't, it's not just true of America, is it? Take God out of any nation's government, and the very government is not fit to govern the people. It's true in America. It's true here. Friends, I hope if you had time on your hands these past days, if you could pick your particular party conference to visit. They're all happening at the minute, aren't they? All over the United Kingdom. I hope whichever one you would choose to go to, I hope you would go there leaving your hope for the future at the door before you entered. For none of them can save us. Your hope for the future is not in the Tories or Labour or SNP or independence or unionism or life after Brexit. No, there is no government capable of governing unbridled human passions. Look at them here. We need a king, don't we? Ah, but which king? There are two kings here. Which king? Why David instead of Ishbosheth? Which one of these kings is going to be on the right side of history? How do we know? How should we choose? Maybe it's the side with the best special forces. That's what we often think, isn't it? Verse 18. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift as foot, swift of foot as a wild gazelle. We still do this today, don't we? Animal associations for strength and power and speed. Asahel here, verse 18, Asahel was the original springbok 
rugby player, strong, fast, and foolish. Friends, today, don't be like Asahel, the athlete. When you're choosing the side of history that you want to be on, brothers and sisters, be very, very careful with strength and skill. Oh, be very careful with strength and skill. These three men in verse 18, these are David's nephews. So Zariah was David's sister. These are family men. They're they're more loyal to David than anybody else on earth. And Asahel wants the spoils of taking down the top man on the other side. He wants to be the one to go back to David and say, "I've, I've solved the problem, David. He wants the scalp added to his belt to go with all those medals that he's got hanging around his neck from sports day at school. And it all goes badly wrong. Badly wrong. Abner warns him twice, doesn't he? Don't, don't do this. You're not going to come out on top. Let's stop. He keeps going. He keeps going. Friends, here's, here's what Alistair Begg says. Listen to this. Asahel's boldness combined with his giftedness resulted in his death. Isn't that amazing? Asahel's boldness combined with his giftedness resulted in his death. The gifts that God gives us, which are real gifts, we may actually use in a way to the detriment of ourselves. It's quite a picture, isn't it? Alistair Begg says, these men that arrive and all see the place where he had fallen and died and stood still in verse 23. Nobody walked past. Nobody could pass. Asahel must have been quite a well-known character. They must have said, you know, he was such a brave fellow. He was such a fast runner. What a tragedy. What a waste. Why wouldn't he listen to sense? Answer, because he was foolish. Fearless but foolish. Beware lest the gifts that God has given you become the occasion of your own destruction. Oh, I think that's a nugget of gold worth handling, isn't it? And staying with and and holding and feeling the weight of for a moment. Happens, doesn't it, again and again throughout the Bible. Do you remember King Uzziah at the age of 17? Again, Alistair Begg says, militarily, socially, economically, relationally, he was a genius and he died a leper. Because he grew proud because he was strong. When he became strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. Friends, do not trust the politicians. Do not trust those who trust themselves. Here's the third nugget. Do not be like Abner the absurd. Abner the absurd. Do you know why we need to call him absurd? Because this man, Abner, knows who will ultimately win. He knows who will win. He knows that his king, Ishbosheth, is not the true king, the real king, and yet he still enthroned him. Still, he fights for him. He absurdly goes against what he knows to be true. Look at verse 22. Abner said, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? This is pure politics. This is pure politics, friends. 
if I hurt you on my way up, what is going to happen to me on my way down when I meet your brother face to face? Face to face. How am I ever going to look your brother in the eye? It doesn't mean that he cares about Joab. No, it means he knows he's going to one day serve Joab. He knows the kingdom is David's. He knows it's in God's hands. He knows the kingdom was given to God by David. Friends, just look at chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Flick forward. We're going to see this next week. But look what Abner says. This is Abner speaking. God do so to Abner and more also. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. Abner knows what God had promised to David. And we'll come to this. This is what Abner is saying. Here is the man fighting David, saying, I know that the Lord has sworn to David that he will be king. And yet he's fighting him. It's absurd, isn't it? David will be king over Israel and over Judah, Abner says. I'm fighting for the wrong king and I'm spilling blood for the wrong king. And do you know what? I'm going to keep spilling blood for the wrong king. How absurd. How bizarre. We, we would never do that, would we? Would I? Would you? Brothers and sisters, Sin is many things. Do you know that sin renders us absurd, even to ourselves? Have you ever felt like that? I believe A. I believe A with all my heart. I was singing it in church. I, I meant every word. I believe it with all my heart. How on earth did I do B? How, how, how is it possible? Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. Abner is not far from any one of us. We share an Abner nature that harbors inside ourselves sin's stupidity, perversity, and twistedness. Let Abner preach to you. Let him tell you that it is possible to know the truth but not embrace the truth, to quote the truth but not submit to the truth, to hold the truth and yet to assault the truth. Abner joins all the other antichrists who strut around and say, I will be king. I wonder how many times since last week you, you thought and act and spoke in ways that said to the people around you, I will be king. Well, my family could count them for me, I can tell you that. They'd need more than two hands. It's what we do, isn't it? We, 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 we know whose side we're on and yet we, we go it alone. All of this, friends, I've called the gold nuggets of the passage. They are helpful things, aren't they? These weak, flawed men are examples to us of what not to do or who not to be. But do you know where I think the greatest treasure is? It's the answer to the question that I asked last week and it's there at the top of your order of service uh, the sermon title, the question, how can I be on the right side of history? 
That, that, that phrase, that question, it means, doesn't it, in, in 100 years from now or 200 years from now, what actions that I take today will one day be proven to be right? How, how can I do something today that the future will show, yes, they were wise, they, they knew which side to go on? Which side can I join today that tomorrow will be shown to be wise and successful? Which king is going to triumph here and how do we know? Well, Abner knows, doesn't he? In chapter 3, you join the side that God is on. You join the side that God has made promises to. Do you know what, friends? There is in our passage just the most lovely hint of the right side to join. I, I hope you know this, friends, that there is beautiful theology in place names. There's beautiful theology in place names. Never go far in your Bible study without, without looking up place names in a dictionary or a study guide. What happened here before this thing happened here? Why is this place mentioned here? Why is the writer telling me that it happened here of all places? When this bloody day is over and the men eventually agree to a truce, that's kind of what they say, isn't it, at the hillside? This is, this is really getting out of hand. When this day is over, where do David's men go? Look at verse 32. They took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. That they are marching back up to Hebron, back to where David is, back to Abraham's place, the great mission of the Bible is still on course. We are heading back to where we need to get to. But where do they stop en route? They stop at Bethlehem. They bury Asahel in the family tomb in Bethlehem. You see, Hebron might have been Abraham's town, but Bethlehem is David's town. Listen to John Woodhouse. If you want to be on the right side of history, you do not need to know about the plans and strategies of Abner and Joab. You need to know about what happened at Bethlehem. See, friends, this day, this 124, 24 tragic period, 24 hours of butchery and bloodshed had taught the people of God again that the best of men from any side cannot bring in the kingdom. They can't do it. Men of action are not good enough, wise enough to decide a standoff like verse 13. What hope is left? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. God's kingdom will come, but how will it come? Now, friends, do you see the beauty of it? That, that one word is meant to jump out from our pages like, like a dry place to put your weight on in a, in a pool of blood that is flowing all around us. The blood is flowing in chapter 2 and the tears are falling for the mighty men of valor. Again, like chapter 1 in chapter 2, we're saying how the mighty have fallen. These men are weeping. In the darkness, friends, Bethlehem shines out like a light on the page. Bethlehem, ah, we say, Bethlehem, I know what happened in Bethlehem. Do you remember Samuel? First Samuel chapter 16, he goes to Jesse's house. 
in Bethlehem. And God says to Samuel, go and I'll show you the man that I've chosen to be king over Israel. And Samuel goes to Jesse's place and Jesse calls out all his sons. And they come out one by one and every single one of them is Royal Marine material. Green Beret, Special Forces. Oh, surely it's this one, Samuel says. If not him, it's the next one. It's the next one. Seven of them march in front of him. Seven, the number of perfection. And it is the eighth son, perfection plus one, David, the youngest son. Ah, there is yet the youngest son, God says to Samuel. Him? Him? Really? Friends, I want to say to us today, if you want to be on the right side of history, then learn this morning that God has the strangest of ways of establishing his kingdom. Oh, he has the strangest of ways. He will not do it in the world the way that other kingdoms work. He will do it in unexpected ways that are weak and foolish to the eyes of worldly strength and wisdom. In just a couple of months, probably from this very lectern, you're going to hear Micah chapter 5 again, aren't you? At Christmas time, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, too insignificant. No one cares about Bethlehem. But from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you want to be on the right side of history, do not forget the Bethlehem principle. God will bring in his kingdom in the dead of night when no one is looking. He's going to do it in the darkness of a virgin's womb. He's going to bring in his kingdom in the obscurity of a stable in a forgotten backwater called Bethlehem in a tiny corner of a Roman-occupied nation. Oh, the weakness upon weakness upon weakness multiplied by weakness. Strangeness upon strangeness, a baby, a child, a carpenter, a preacher, a prophet, a priest, a crucified king. Really? You know, we need to read Old Testament stories, don't we, knowing how it all ends, that God is bringing everything together under Jesus as king. Everything together, that that word together here in our passage that means That is something these men failed to do. They couldn't bring everybody together. They only died together. David went up to Hebron and the world opposed his reign. God has raised Jesus from death and raised him up to heaven and the world opposes his reign. It's what happens. But the Lord Jesus is not just on the right side of history as he He is ruling history and writing history. You know, I saw this week, friends, as I finish, I I came across the poem that Stephen Armitage, uh, the poet laureate, wrote for the royal family after the death of Queen Elizabeth. And one, one beautiful little set of lines caught my eye in the middle of it. He said this, addressing the dead queen, the country loaded its whole self into your slender hands, 
Hands that can rest now, relieved of a century's weight. The country loaded its whole self into your slender hands, but those hands can rest now, relieved of a century's weight. Oh, it is what happens, isn't it, to the best of rulers that God gives us. Their hands are slender and weak and do not last forever. Their hands come and go. They can carry us and lead us only so long. But there are hands that will never be relieved of a universe's weight, hands into which God entrusts the government of everything. The hands of our Lord Jesus, our King, from Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem of all places, the King has come. Amen.